from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, March 27th. I'm Marco Werman. The UN says the government in Syria has accepted a six-point peace plan, but opposition activists say the fighting hasn't stopped. Also, two young Syrian Americans returned to Syria to join the rebels. Their father wasn't pleased when he found them. I cursed them. I, 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 of course, I didn't say hello to them. I said, you know, I was very angry. I was worried about myself. Now I'm worried about three people. And later, the looting of Egypt's antiquities post-revolution. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, presenting Murdoch's Scandal. The powerful media mogul's reputation, future, and dynasty are in peril, resulting from business practices in his media empire. Tuesday, March 27th at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Two announcements today from the United Nations regarding the bloodshed in Syria. On the one hand, the U.N. said the death toll from the year-long Syrian conflict has surpassed 9,000 people. On the other hand, U.N. and Arab League envoy Kofi Annan said the government of President Bashar al-Assad has finally accepted a six-point peace plan. But there's a lot of skepticism about that. The United States, for one, says it would be best to look for action, not words, from the Syrian authorities. And anti-government activists say the fighting in Syria continues. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times is in Beirut. Borzu, what is the latest on the violence? And does that figure from the U.N. of 9,000 dead people square with the reports you've heard of the current situation on the ground? Oh, I think at least uh, 9,000 people dead. Uh, We're talking also uh, maybe thousands missing, either in prison or uh, buried in uh, in mass graves by the regime's forces, and and also possibly uh, by uh, anti-regime militants who have uh, taken part in revenge attacks. Today, uh, there's reports that in the northern uh, province of Idlib in Syria, there was a mass execution in the uh, town of uh, Saqarib. Uh, where more than 20 people were executed, and then the uh, relatives of those people were told to come to the town square and collect the bodies of their of their dead. Uh, this has not been confirmed. This is from an activist network that I've found very reliable in the past year of uh, reporting on Syria. So what do all these reports, Borzu, imply for this peace plan that uh, Kofi Annan has developed? Look, I mean, I and uh, many other close observers of the Syrian conflict have a lot of uh, doubts about the regime's sincerity in abiding by any peace plan. Again and again over the past year, uh, and I, I want to stay as balanced as possible in, in saying this, you know, the Syrian regime has has uh, uh, not been straightforward about its sort of diplomatic efforts. Uh, it has appeared to be using diplomatic efforts as a, a kind of space to step up violence uh, against its enemies. And it seems far more interested in physically liquidating Uh, the opposition, than in making any kind of reconciliation or deal with them. Now, on paper, the peace plan looks like a simple ceasefire that would leave Bashar al-Assad in power. Is that right? 
Yeah, I, don't, I didn't see anything interesting about it other than, you know, increasing the uh, release of uh, prisoners, not even acknowledging uh, that the regime has not released uh, prisoners as it has promised in the past. Um, and this sort of vague talk of a political reconciliation. Uh, there, there is nothing there basically except uh, opening up humanitarian lines to uh, civilians and to stop targeting civilians. But, you know, Kofi Annan says that the Syrian regime has accepted this plan. I haven't heard anything from the Syrian regime itself saying that they've accepted this plan. Now, whether it's related to the peace plan or not, Bashar al-Assad went to Homs uh, to inspect uh, the the damage there and to to greet supporters. One comment today uh, that I read in a report came from an opposition supporter in Syria who said that Assad's visit to Homs is simply a green light to kill again. Does he have a legitimate concern? I think he does have a legitimate concern. I think this was not meant as an attempt at reconciliation. Uh, I think that Bashar al-Assad's visit to Homs was sort of like a, a Roman conqueror arriving uh, to uh, you know inspect the uh, the Visigoths that they they've just conquered, uh, and that's really the way many Syrians saw this uh, visit to Homs, especially to the Baba Amro district, uh, which has been the opposition stronghold that has been destroyed with like a Grozny-like uh, ferocity. So I, I don't think anyone sees this as a, a step towards reconciliation. It's seen as an attempt at humiliating and uh, uh, declaring victory over the opposition. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times in Beirut. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Despite the odds against them and the setbacks, many Syrian rebels remain committed to their cause. You can hear that in our next story. Reporter Marine Olavesi tells us about a Syrian-American family whose members have just reunited. A 20-year-old man knocks on the door of a house outside of Philadelphia. Abdul is nervous. He knows the apartment is packed with relatives waiting for him. Two brothers, several cousins and uncles crowd around and slap him on the back. Then the blue-eyed young man falls in his mother's arms. It's enough, mom. Stop crying. I'm here now, Abdul whispers to her in Arabic. She and the rest of the family hadn't heard from Abdul since mid-February. At the time, he told his parents that he went to Turkey, where his older brother Mo was staying, to help Syrian refugees. The two young men fell off the grid shortly after. Abdul says he and his brother tried to buy weapons in Turkey before sneaking into Syria. There, the two joined a small unit with the Free Syrian Army. I made my decision to fight with them. And I, I think this is honor to fight with the free fighters. Abdul and Mo trained in the mountainous region inside Syria for a few days. Then they went to Idlib, a stronghold of the opposition. It's also the family's hometown. Both Mo and Abdul were born in the U.S. but raised in Syria. In 2009, Abdul moved to New Jersey to go to college. But when the uprising kicked off a year ago, he says the news coming out of Syria became all-consuming. In early February, Abdul dropped out of college and flew to Turkey. Meanwhile, Abdul's mother and two younger brothers made the reverse trip. They fled the violence in Syria and took refuge in New Jersey. His father, Michael, stayed in Idlib to tend to his drugstore. Abdul says he wasn't eager to let his father know he was back in Idlib. We were in the the same protest, but I was hiding behind people, so he can't see me. What were you afraid of? He's going to send me out of the country if he sees me. If I tell him, he's going to kick me right away out of the country. The Syrian army stormed Idlib on March 10th. 
Michael says he was holed up in his apartment. You can hear the bombing and shelling and the sound of bullets is like ringing boom, 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 behind each other. Then his phone rang. His sister delivered a confusing message. She told him, come get your boys. I said, what boys? God help them. What? My boys, thanks God, my boys are not here. They are outside the country. And she said, no, no, your boys, they are surrounded with tanks and they are at their uncle's house and they don't know what to do. I said, my boys? She said, yeah, this one and this one. Abdul says he and Mo had fought with their rebel unit, then realized that their rusty Kalashnikovs could do nothing against the army's tanks and shells. The brothers gave up and retreated to their uncle's house nearby. Their father, Michael, says he jumped in his car and drove through the shelling to pick them up. But he says he didn't give them a warm welcome. I cursed them. Uh, of course, I didn't say hello to them. I said, you, both of you. I said, you know, I was cursing... Very, very strong word, you know, I'm sorry to say that, but I was very angry. I was worried about myself, now I'm worried about three people. With the help of friends, Michael arranged for his son's escape. Three Frisian army fighters smuggled them out of Idlib in the middle of the afternoon. Their father sneaked out of Idlib the same night, and the three reunited the next day in southern Turkey. Michael finally kissed his sons, but he still had harsh words for their actions. It is stupid what they've done. It is very stupid. Because people paying a lot of money to get out and they cannot get out. And they came by themselves. They went to the death trap. Abdul says the government's crackdown has only hardened their resolve. Don't do this again, were his father's words when the two kissed goodbye in Turkey. Abdul says he can't promise anything. For the world, I'm Marine Olivezi. The sort of change Abdul and his fellow insurgents want for Syria is part of history now in other countries swept by the Arab Spring. In Egypt, the casualties of the revolution have included pieces of the country's history. Since President Hosni Mubarak's government fell last February, many of Egypt's museums were looted. And the looting has gone beyond museums. Now criminals are digging up archaeological sites and stealing their treasures. Carol Redmount is an archaeologist with the University of California. She's been excavating an archaeological site in El Hiba, about 200 miles from Cairo. But she's not the only one. The site is regularly being targeted by looters. So Redmount has launched a Facebook page, including photos of looters at work. Professor Redmount joins us from the dig house in El Fasha, not far from the site. Tell us what you've seen, Professor Redmount. As you approach the site, there is a cemetery to its north. This cemetery has been thoroughly looted. Body parts are strewn everywhere. Pieces of mummies have been left out in the open. Um, bones are everywhere. Now they're largely disarticulated. Sometimes you can see the, the packages of mummy cloth, jawbones, skulls, um, sometimes toes, with, still with flesh attached. Um, it's, it's horrific. As you go through the north gate into the site, you're met by mounds of dirt that's been dug up by the looters as they dig down through the site. Um, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of holes in the site, and there isn't a single area of the tell that hasn't been touched. We've got pictures of some of the things you, you've seen uh, at theworld.org. I've got to say, it really is heartbreaking. Who's doing the looting? Uh, my understanding is that it is the work of essentially a gang of criminals headed by a uh, master criminal who escaped from jail after the revolution. At least this is what I've been told. 
He's running a mafia-like organization in the sense that it's a group of, of family members. Uh, they live in the village just to the north of the site. Um, he has weapons, and he controls this gang that's, that's just going out and digging up the tell every day. What can you tell has been actually taken from the site, and is it possible to estimate the value of what's been looted at this point? We honestly don't know. The only thing we can do is um, is guess based on material that has come out of the site before. There were portrait mummies that came out, what are more popularly known as the Fayum portraits, stone sarcophagi, beautiful painted wooden sarcophagi, painted um, cartonnage sarcophagi, bead nets, Coptic textiles. The site's also known for a lot of papyri that have come out of it, um, some quite important works of Egyptian literature. We are located in a very poor area of Egypt, so people usually loot uh, for monetary reasons. And for some of these people, even the price they would get for an ashapti or uh, a scarab or an amulet would make it worthwhile looting. So you've launched this Facebook campaign. What do you hope it's going to do? We have uh, really two goals for the Facebook campaign. One is to just raise awareness, um, both within Egypt and and internationally. And I'm very pleased to say that we have a large number of Egyptians on our site, as well as uh, people from all over the world. And we want to raise awareness of the looting problem, uh, obviously specifically for El Heba, but also for all of Egypt's cultural heritage, because this is an ongoing problem all over Egypt. And secondly... We would really would like to get the site protected. Even as I speak to you now, looting is ongoing. There is no protection for the site, and the thieves are just free to come and go at will. We drove past the site once on our way to the desert road to Cairo, and we saw 10 people in broad daylight just looting the site. We actually got pictures of two of them. They'd go off on their motorcycles, and in fact, in one of our visits to the site, a motorcycle came over the hill, took one look at us visiting the site, and turned around and went in the other direction. And while we can't be sure, chances are this is one of our looters. So this really, really needs to stop. Carol Redmount, an archaeologist with the University of California, thanks very much indeed. You're very welcome. Thank you. Still ahead on the program, what's crispy on the outside and succulent on the inside? Well, it's the answer to today's GeoQuiz on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Remember the riots in England last summer? Well, an official report into the causes of those riots is coming out this week. Parts of the document have been leaked, though. The report cites a lack of support and opportunities for young people in Britain as key factors. Right after the riots, Prime Minister David Cameron pointed to Glasgow as an example the rest of Britain should follow. Cameron was talking about the Scottish city's success in reducing youth-related gang violence over the past four years. Glasgow, though, borrowed much of its strategy from Boston and Cincinnati. The world's Laura Lynch reports. It's after dark in the Glasgow neighborhood of Castle Milk, often a dangerous time in this gritty part of town. But this center, packed with 13 to 25-year-olds, is buzzing with the energy of youth playing pool, watching TV, or even taking cooking classes. 
The center has negotiated with six local gangs to grant youngsters coming here safe passage. Hello, good evening, welcome to the show. It's two minutes past six. You're listening to Cyclone FM. What a joy it is to be back. Upstairs, 16 year old Charles Lang is starting his online radio show. Lang grew up in the neighborhood, and here's what he considers normal. Listen to his list of people he knows who have been attacked or jumped. My father's been jumped, my cousin's been jumped, me and my friend get jumped just before Christmas there, my sister's been jumped. It's just, just been in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think. And that's just off the top of his head. Lang is happy to be able to come here, to go anywhere, really. There was a time when he wouldn't step outside his house at night, and a time when he thought about joining a gang. So you were tempted to get into a gang because you wanted to be seen as popular? Well, well I almost did get into a gang, and I've, I've witnessed um, gang fights. How old were you when you saw the gang fights? When I was 12, 13. You said you're hanging out with the cool kids. That, that was well, the idea. The, yeah, that was the, that was the sort of idea. I think that's, that's everyone's idea. In fact, gangs have been a part of Glasgow's violent subculture for decades, portrayed recently in this film set in the 1970s. Then, as now, young men arm themselves with knives, machetes or broken bottles and set upon each other in housing projects, parks and sometimes in the city centre. In 2004, Glasgow was the murder capital of Western Europe. That was when police intelligence chief Karen McCluskey decided to travel across the Atlantic. I mean, I think we've, um, we've stolen quite a lot from America and we embraced the philosophy at the very beginning that no-one's safe until everyone's safe. We've tried to get everybody involved and for everybody to realise they've got responsibility. McCluskey met in the U.S. with David Kennedy, who is the driving force behind successful anti-gang violence initiatives in Boston and Cincinnati. McCluskey returned convinced it could work in Glasgow. It was a new approach that mixed a zero-tolerance policing policy with broad-based community efforts. Get gang members into education, work, and a new way of life. She admits it wasn't an easy sell. But what they were saying was, well, these are African-American men, predominantly who are being dealt with in Boston. But I said, well, when I saw them, they were exactly the same as the young guys that we had in Glasgow. They were deprived, they had no aspiration. It was all about respect, a whole range of things that the violence came out of. Race wasn't the key thing. What was key, McCluskey believed, was reaching out to disaffected young men. With about 170 gangs across the city, hundreds of them were at risk of violence. Emergency room doctors estimated someone was knifed every six hours. James was one of them. The jagged scar near his mouth, a telltale sign of his troubled past. By the time I'm 12, I was carrying a knife. By the time you were 12, you are carrying a knife? Yeah. See, there isn't really much memory of what happened in between, but there's, um, most of the memories are negative and they're not really at happy times, but they, I'm carrying a knife at 12 and I'm way older guys who stay in the housing scheme, so I'm running with people who are about 15 and I'm 12. James fits the familiar pattern. Growing up poor, both his parents were alcoholics. He says his father began beating him when he was five years old. Did you like being part of a gang? Did, did you feel like you belonged somewhere? I felt safe. Didn't feel secure in my house. But when I was in the gang, I felt secure. You so, felt more secure out with the gang than you felt in your own house? Yeah, I was getting security off them. 
they were meeting needs that I wasn't getting in the house. I was noticed I was a somebody in the gang. But the gang life eventually led to prison. By the time I was 15, I had already used a knife and I was doing, I was doing a two-year prison sentence. Let's be clear about that. You say by the time you were 15, you'd already used a knife. What you're saying is you'd stabbed people by the age of 15. Yeah. For What did you do? I cut a guy's face with a knife. Um, and I went, I went to prison for two years and, and then I got out. I just went back to running about with the gang. Even that wasn't enough. James went back to the gang and then at the age of 20 was convicted after a man he was fighting with fell under a bus and died. James is now 33, out of jail and father to a little girl. And he's one of the Glasgow Violence Reduction Unit's secret weapons, lending some street cred to a gathering labelled a call-in. Gang members are summoned to a meeting, along with stark police warnings and graphic photos of slashed faces. Men like James deliver vivid, powerful stories about their traumatic past and what it's cost them and their families. John Carnican, a grizzled veteran cop, wasn't certain all this touchy-feely U.S.-style talking would work. And, and, and the call-ins, Karen was always convinced were a key component of it. I, was, I wasn't convinced at the start. I thought, mm, this is to do with America. This is a bit too much of a theatre for me. And, and I'm now absolutely convinced they are a fundamental part of how this works. Carnican now heads up the Violence Reduction Unit. He's watched the numbers go down. Among the 500 or so gang members who signed a pledge to work with the unit since 2008, violence offending has been cut nearly in half. Carnican recalls one moment when he knew it was going to work. And a fella stood up who was maybe about 20 or 21, scars on his face, the, the, the stereotypical young East End Glasgow man, and he pointed to another table and he said, see the guys at that table over there? I've been fighting with them since I was 11. I want to know why. Glasgow's success has led to plans to expand into other neighbourhoods it hasn't been able to reach. And Karen McCluskey is now looking to intervene before boys ever get close to gangs. <laughs> this daycare centre offers sanctuary for children who are classified as vulnerable but it also offers parenting courses for young, often single mothers to try to break the cycle of violence. McCluskey sees this as a priority for a community where the problem is still far from being fixed. But we are not fixed by a long way. Um, We will have to have huge resilience um, to keep this going. We'll have to keep partners interested. So I'm delighted at the the initial um, impact that we've had, but this is a long journey that we're going to be on. Key to that will be continued funding and government support. Otherwise, she warns, the gains in Glasgow could disappear in the flash of a knife blade. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Glasgow. You can hear an interview with an American expert on gang-related violence who worked with officials in Glasgow as they were drafting their program. That audio extra is at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a writer who says we should stop feeling guilty about Chinese labor and our iPads. You know, it isn't about you and your purchases and your guilt. There's something happening in China, which is a massive transformation. Let's just give them their due that they're choosing to go through these lives and not just think it's about us and our iPads. That's coming up on The World. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's a simple fact that serious crimes often go unpunished in Mexico. A report published this week by researchers in Mexico City says four out of five murders committed in the country are never prosecuted. That's a lot of unsolved murders in a country where some 50,000 people have been killed in less than five and a half years. Lots of factors contribute to such impunity in Mexico. The discovery earlier this month of a possible mass grave in the southern Mexican state of Chiapas helped to highlight one of those factors. Reporter Shannon Young has a story. It wasn't the first time more than 100 human remains were found in a single site in Mexico in the past year. Mass graves have become an increasingly common discovery within the context of the drug war. But the case of the at least 167 human skeletal remains found in a cave in Frontera Comalapa, Chiapas, turned out to be unique. It wasn't a mass grave, but rather a pre-Columbian bone deposit. This is like the first time that happened, at least in my administration here in the state. That's Dr. Emiliano Gallaga, the director of the Chiapas Office of Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History, or INA for short. Ina is the official caretaker of Mexico's physical ancient history, like the remains in that cave. Gallaga says Ina should have been contacted before the bones were taken from the site, but that didn't happen. My guess is that the person who discovered the cave with a bunch of skeletons gets scared and, and calls the police. The police go. They saw that there were a bunch of bones and they freak out about uh, well, the narco violence that we have. So they came right away, they collected stuff and they took it and suddenly somebody said, oh, wait, wait a minute, this looks old. Gallaga says it wasn't until after the remains were removed that Ina's staff were consulted. And because this find occurred over a weekend, they were only sent photos. Given that some of the skulls showed evidence of intentional cranial deformation, a practice used in ancient Mesoamerican societies, anthropology officials told police medical examiners that the bones could possibly be pre-Columbian. Authorities from the state attorney general's office held a weekend press conference to calm fears and announced that the find was not a recent mass grave. The story soon dropped off the news radar, leaving some important details ignored and questions unasked. First, how could an archaeological site have been mistaken for a modern-era crime scene? Forensic anthropologist William Hagland, who's led mass grave investigations for the United Nations and Physicians for Human Rights, says the authorities in Chiapas failed to adhere to standard protocol for crime scene investigations involving skeletal remains. He says that in the case of multiple skeletons, guards should be posted at the site because crime scene investigations can take several days to carry out, months if the scene is determined to be an archaeological find. According to local media at the scene, state police and soldiers took a mere 15 hours to empty the cave of its remains. Video and photos show that authorities raked up bones with a hoe, Upon analyzing the visual documentation, Hagland says he was bothered by telltale signs of reckless handling of the remains. 
their busted crania, their recent fractures of bones. They stuffed them all into large bags, and I understand they did it very, very fast and just wrecked it for history. And, and the disrespect for the remains was just horrible. Crime scenes and archaeological finds share an important characteristic. Diligent documentation from the start is crucial to understanding how and why remains got there. Archaeologist James Brady at Cal State in Los Angeles is appalled by what was done at the site in Chiapas. Once you've changed the context, it's gone. It's destroyed. And that's what they've done. They've completely destroyed that site. They've raped it. I, I to me, all of that bone that they've recovered is of negligible value without the context. Within the field of archaeology, Dr. Brady specializes in the study of caves in ancient Mesoamerica. He says that while it's common to find human skeletal material in caves, this particular discovery was huge. The scale is simply unparalleled. This was a very important discovery. We haven't had a cave with this many burials in that area before. And so to have something that, that of this magnitude utterly destroyed is just awful. According to the Chiapas State Attorney General's office, state police and soldiers participated in the removal of the remains from the cave. Even if the find in Chiapas had been a mass grave, it would not have been the first time authorities have radically departed from standard crime scene protocol. The largest of these modern-day grave sites have been found in and around the state capital of Durango. At least some of the 300 bodies which have been uncovered there were damaged by the use of heavy machinery to extract delicate decomposing remains. Forensic anthropologist William Haglin says that raises questions about the will of the authorities. It sounds to me like they're really not invested in solving anything. If the past year is any indication, mass graves attributed to drug war violence will continue to pop up around Mexico. And questions regarding the fate of thousands of disappeared persons will persist. But if the methods used to collect evidence from that cave in Chiapas are indicative of those used nationwide, answers to those questions will remain elusive. For The World, I'm Shannon Young in Oaxaca, Mexico. You can see pictures of the cave in Mexico and hear archaeologist James Brady discuss what went wrong. The slideshow's at theworld.org. Theater performer Mike Daisy apologized this weekend for fabricating details of his one-man play. The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs focuses on the poor conditions for workers who make Apple products in China. Daisy admitted making up details he previously said he'd witnessed firsthand. Turns out he didn't spend much time with Chinese workers. Leslie T. Chang did. She says she spent two years interviewing workers for her book, Factory Girls, From Village to City in a Changing China. And Chang thinks Westerners who feel guilty about buying the electronics these Chinese workers assemble are missing the point. When we Americans think about Chinese factory workers, we think two things. One, they have really miserable lives. And two, we are responsible for their miserable lives because we want iPads and iPods and Nikes and Levi's and all these nice brands at reasonable prices. And what I found through getting to know factory workers in two years of reporting was that their concerns are very different. They don't really care that they're making something that's going to be sold across the world for hundreds of dollars or that someone much 
wealthier than them is going to buy or, you know, they're, they're really focused on their own personal experiences and their own motivations and their own dreams. These are young women and men who come out from rural Chinese villages. They've come to the big city as teenagers, you know, late teens, early 20s to work in large factories. And conditions that might seem really horrible to us, to them are certainly not great, but also not worth commenting about. For them, it's exciting to be in the city. It's wonderful to earn money for the first time, and that completely changes how they see themselves. They start challenging their parents often. They think, I don't want to get married so young. I want to work and save some money and improve myself. So in short, from moving from the village to the city turns them into different people. Put a face to one of these factory girls. You stayed in pretty close touch with many uh, many of the girls you met there. One of them is uh, Lu Qingmin. She started on an assembly line of an electronics plant. What happened to her? When I first met her, she had spent a year working in a very, very bad electronics factory for 400 yuan, which is about $50 a month, um, which even in Dongguan at that time was very, very low. But over the course of two years, she jumped factories probably five or six times, She talked her way off the assembly line into kind of low-level clerical work. And from there, she moved up into human resources and into purchasing. She managed to save enough money to buy her parents an apartment in the city. She married and had two daughters, and she and her husband bought a car. And her husband is now doing deliveries, a small-scale delivery business. And she recently moved back to Dongguan to get another purchasing job. And she's now thinking about the future and saving money for her daughters and her family. So, you know, this is eight years in the life of a young woman who even now is only 24 years old, packed with incident and change and transformation and social mobility. And I don't think Min is that unusual in her background and in her trajectory. She is one of many, many millions, tens of millions of young women who go through these changes after they go to the city to work. And did she uh, experience any of the bad uh, working conditions? As you say, most Americans would see some of them as a step up from prison life, 10 or 15 workers to a room, 50 people sharing one bathroom, days and nights ruled by the factory clock. She didn't complain about anything like that? She saw all those things. When I met her, the job she just left was she was working 13 or 14 hours a day. She never had a day off, never. The last day she'd had off was maybe two months before when the factory lost power for one day and everyone, yippee, got a day off, you know. She was living, I think, maybe 20 people to a room. She said the food in the canteen was terrible. There was never any meat. The rice had worms in it. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible. And it's not that she didn't complain, but that It wasn't a reason for her to make a decision one way or the other. You know, when she thought about what she wanted to do, it was where can I get a better salary and where can I learn some skills so I can move off the assembly line and do something different and better. Now, the New York Times reporters on this beat have gone to some lengths to distinguish between harsh working conditions and life-threatening conditions, incidents, for for instance, at Apple factories involving explosions caused by dust that killed workers. I mean, these sorts of life-threatening conditions that involve gross negligence can't be excused, can they? Of course not. Of course not. There are certainly places that are dangerous, that are life-threatening, and they must be redressed. And what my point is, is that in most cases... These are not the conditions that your average workers are dealing with. And, you know, they are not victims. The workers choose to leave the countryside to go to the city. They choose to work in a certain factory. If they don't like the factory, it's true they can't 
organize a union. They can't sue their boss. Certainly the system is stacked against them, but their choice is to leave to a better factory. And over time, the really bad factories don't have workers and they have to improve conditions or they go out of business. So it isn't about you. You know, it isn't about you and your purchases and your guilt. There's something happening in China, which is a massive transformation. Millions, hundreds of millions of people are leaving the countryside for the city. This is larger than the number of people who came from Europe to America over a century. The changes that they're going through are immense and personal, and let's just give them their due that they're choosing to go through these lives and not just think it's about us and our iPads. Leslie T. Chang, a longtime China correspondent and a contributor to The New Yorker. Thank you very much, Leslie. Thank you. We're serving up one of China's gastronomical symbols in today's GeoQuiz. This unofficial national dish of China has been a favorite since imperial days. It's roasted, crispy on the outside, succulent inside. This is an entree that's closely associated with Beijing. Its name echoes the older English version of the capital's name. In a few minutes, we're talking to a reporter who's found a perfect place in Beijing to sample this delicacy. I hear you loud and clear. I see many ducks inside of wood-burning ovens. I see people pressing out uh, dumplings and pancakes. Smells fantastic. Wish you were here. I wish I was there, too. So what's the dish? You might just stumble across a few more clues on my Twitter feed, at Marco Werman. Otherwise, we're back in just a few minutes with the answer. It's not easy finding a place to live in London. Buying an apartment is too expensive for many, and rents keep climbing. So more than ever, apartments are being shared. Enter the sport of speed flatmating. The world's Rahul Joglaker recently checked out an event in London. I just came from a house where I was living with nine strangers. A dimly lit basement of a restaurant in central London is jammed with about 100 people. Everyone's wearing either a pink or a white badge. Pink for, I need a room. White for, I have a room to rent. They talk, exchange numbers, and move on. I'm standing next to Steve Vine. We have a very nice uh, three-bedroom flat in Kennington, South London. Our ideal flatmate um, would be someone who is you know, reasonably social, likes pop culture, enjoys hanging out, watching movies and eating pizza. Speed flat meeting combines the idea of apartment hunting with speed dating. You can meet a lot of potential roommates in a short period of time, pick out some good leads and screen out the creepy ones. You don't have to go through the uh, embarrassment of inviting them round to your flat and they've got to go, oh my God, you know. It's like, how do you tell them, you know, that... No chance, I'm not going to live with that person. Pharmacist Anathai is scanning the room. She's looking for... Location, close to central, close to public transport links, people you can get along with. Speed flat mating has been around for years, but the idea is really taking off now. Rupert Hunt owns spareroom.co.uk, the organiser of this event. He says with real estate prices historically high and salaries remaining flat in this economy, people can't afford to live on their own. Sign of the times, people are renting longer. They can't afford to get on the property ladder. People are staying single longer as well. Uh, They're just putting off the big decisions in life. So, yeah, we're seeing flat share as well into the 30s and far cry from the kind of young ones kind of image of the 80s and, and 70s. 
do you have sort of anyone, any boyfriends or...? This kind of event isn't for everyone. But for those who do take the plunge, it could potentially lead to something else. My name is Sasha, and I was just chatting to two lovely girls just before, and, and, I, and I started talking to them, and I just realised, wow, this is becoming more of a speed dating thing rather than a flat sharing sort of event, so you never know. In fact, Spare Rooms Rupert Hunt says he's bought a wedding cake for a couple who met at an event like this one. For The World, I'm Rahul Joglekar in London. Just ahead, Karen Mukupa lays down some heavy Danish Zambian beats on The World from PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We asked you to name one of China's national dishes for today's GeoQuiz. For the answer now, let's step inside a typical restaurant in Beijing. Food journalist Steve Dolinsky is seated, has ordered. And Steve, tell me what I'm missing. Well, I am in the Made in China restaurant in Beijing. There are chefs at almost every other table here with large carts and entire whole roasted ducks on each of these carts, while just off in the distance I see two enormous wood-burning ovens, brick ovens. Each oven has about a dozen ducks hanging inside of them, up by the neck, and they've been roasting in there for about an hour. And the, the dish that we are going to be having in just a minute here is Peking duck. Peking duck, believe it or not, it's not a place, but it is the answer to the GeoQuiz today. How many different restaurants have you tried Peking duck in, in Beijing? This happens to be my sixth and final restaurant. I've been here for about four days. Everybody claims to have the best. Everybody does it the right way. And is there a traditional way to prepare it? The the key to Peking duck is having this contrast between a crispy exterior skin and then having this incredibly succulent, moist breast meat. So the cooks have these long wooden sticks. They're probably six feet long. And they're constantly pushing these sticks into the ovens where the fire is raging. And they're lifting up the, the ducks are being are hung on these iron hooks. And there's a little catch for the end of the stick. And they'll pull the duck into the fire, crisp up the skin a little bit, a couple seconds, push it back away from the fire to keep roasting. And they'll constantly do this throughout the roasting process. So they really have to get a sense for looking at the duck, making sure the color is right. And then when, they, when it's just right, they will pull it out put it on a cart, and bring it to the table. Wow, what an art. It really is. It really takes a lot of skill. A lot of these cooks I've been talking to have been doing it for 15, 20 years. And then, of course, the other part of this equation is serving the duck. They'll take a very sharp cleaver and slice it very thinly across the top, just getting that outer layer of this crispy skin. And several places will just offer the skin as a first course with a little bit of sugar. And you'll dip into the sugar, pop it in your mouth, and get this wonderful almost duck candy flavor of that sweetness balanced to get that, that, that really fatty richness. Oh, Steve, then, you're, you're killing me, man. <laughs> they're killing me. Just watch, I'm, I'm watching these guys serve it right now, right in front of me. So then they'll slice the breast meat with a little bit of skin on it. And then all the condiments arrive, freshly made paper-thin pancakes about the diameter of a softball, a little bit of sweet hoisin sauce, shredded scallions, only the white part of the, the Chinese scallion. So what you do is you take a little bit of the meat, dredge it through that sweet hoisin sauce, place it into your pancake, put on a little bit of that uh, scallion, a little bit of cucumber, maybe a little daikon, wrap it up, and you've got about a, a two-finger width-sized Chinese burrito, I guess, is the best way to describe it. It's a little package 
and it takes about two bites to enjoy, but when you eat this <laughs> Peking duck say. pancake, you're getting everything. The crisp, the sweet, the salt, the fat. Honestly, it is one of my favorite dishes of all time. I love Peking duck. Steve, why don't they call it Beijing duck? Did someone just let the Peking-Beijing historical thing slip? Yeah, they must have. I can't imagine they're going to ever change this to Beijing duck. This has got such a history, and you talk about going back hundreds of years. I mean, you just can't, like, like Texas barbecue, you know, is Texas barbecue. That's never going to change. Chicago hot dogs. Right. It's the same thing here. Peking duck is never going to change. Food journalist Steve Delinsky eating his way around Beijing, trying Peking duck at every turn, and uh, save some leftovers for me. I will eat them. I certainly will. Shay Shay. I must admit, I find it a little strange when people call me the Danish hip-hop queen. This is rapper Karen Mukupa. I started rapping way back in the day when I was just a kid, it was all just play, yo. I have a song there called Freedom, and it's, yeah, it's about, you know, it, the world is, is a little bit crazy at the moment. And if a lot of the lyrics in, in rap music is about money and bling and women and da-da-da, and is that what gives us happiness? I don't really think so. Is that, is that what freedom is, to be a rich person? Yeah, of course, it's, it's a comfortable thing, but I don't think that's what gives us freedom in that way. It's about finding yourself inside, finding the values deeper than that. Karen Mukupa was born in Zambia in 1973. She grew up in Tanzania, and when she was a kid, she told her Danish dad she was going to be a musician. And by 1989, she was. Karen Mukupa became one half of the hip-hop reggae duo No Name Requested. The pair found success in the Danish underground music scene. Their big break occurred just a year later in 1990, when the duo opened for the queen herself, Queen Latifah. I think we'd been rapping together maybe two or three months, but uh, the promoter here said, oh, there's some Danish girls who rap too, so let them, let them warm up. And we met her, and she, was, she gave us props. <laughs> and that actually, that really did a lot for us. Because we warmed up, there was a lot of press there, and they wrote about us. And it was a really good review, but the thing which we noticed that they wrote, uh, two nougat mice, I don't, you know nougat, it's the chocolate. Two chocolate mice rapping at Queen Latifah. And we were like, chocolate mice? We are female rappers. Karen Mokupa is definitely no chocolate mouse. These days, the Danish Zambian rapper has gone solo. You would think because I'm a female rapper that it will be politics or about feminism and things like that. But I think I'm over that stage now. I've been there. So my new album is called Human. And, I've, and because I'm, I'm, a mixed, I'm of mixed race, so it's also about restlessness. You know, I feel at home in Denmark, but I also feel at home in Africa. And sometimes I don't feel at home anywhere. So it's about finding myself and finding, you know, um, just finding a, a place where I feel at home. And I think that's, I believe it's inside of me.
It's been two decades since Danish hip-hop fans were first introduced to Karen Makupa. You too can be introduced and learn more about her and watch the video for the song Human at theworld.org. We'll close today's program with another track from the album, a nod to Makupa's Zambian roots. This tune is called Sina Makosa. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.